Hi, and welcome to Song Divers, an interview podcast about singer-songwriters. We like to go deep in conversation with our favorite musicians in search of honest answers. What are the ingredients of a great song? What makes a songwriter tick? Can a musician make a living these days? Is Jason Isbell overrated? What? My name is Stefan. And this is Ed. And on this episode, Ed gets out the tremolo because we got to speak and jam with this true folk rock legend. But first, a quick look into the not-too-distant future to get you excited about our upcoming episodes. Those include guests Lydia Luce, Cave McCoy of Grey Market, Danny and Alex, and Andrew Duhon, just to name a few. For our local listeners, a few Song Divers-related concerts to put on the calendar... Upcoming guest, Cave McCoy's band Grey Market, will be at Crowbar in Ybor City, March 29th. Andrew Duhan and Lydia Luce co-headlining a tour, and they'll be here in Clearwater April 7th at Ruth Eckerd Hall's Murray Theatre. And Ed and I will be performing April 13th as part of the Hideaway Cafe's 10-year anniversary festival here in St. Petersburg. Ed with his band, and then later with me and Mercy McCoy. We hope to see you at those shows. And we would love to say hi if you've been enjoying the podcast. Now, where were we? Ah, right. Our guest. Hi, my name is Ronnie Elliott. Glad to be here. In 1947, Billboard still had race record in country and western charts. Hank Williams released his first record in January of that year. Alan Wolf met Junior Parker in 1947. They decided to start a band. I was born in Birmingham, Alabama in that year. Listening to a Ronnie Elliott song is a little like following a poetry-spouting hobo back through time into the nether regions of 20th century pop culture. You find an old guitar in an alley, and hey, the hobo knows three chords. His rich baritone is equal parts friendly and authoritative, and he seems trustworthy, eh, possibly harmless anyway. So you keep following him, and he seems to know everyone in every bar you go in. The famous and the anonymous. The has-beens and the should-have-beens. The living, the dead. Wait, is that Elvis at the jukebox? And isn't that Jack Kerouac underneath that table? Now the radio has gone to hell. Hank Williams has gone to heaven They ask you when rock and roll was born You tell them 1947 Well, listening to Ronnie is kind of like that for me And just to be clear, I mean all of that is a high compliment By any measure, he's a Tampa legend Who's played with Chuck Berry and Gene Vincent He opened for Jimi Hendrix once And can tell you what it's like to be in the same room with Van Morrison He's been around and seen it all, and he's still around and still sees it all, and generously gives it all to anyone who will listen. We hope you enjoyed part one of our freewheeling conversation with this Tampa favorite. So, Ronnie, welcome welcome to Song Divers. Thank you very much. Glad to have you here. Thanks for the hospitality. First thing we generally start everybody off with is, uh, where are you from? I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I moved to uh, Tampa when I was six and I've been here ever since. That's a, that's a long time. That's a very, very long time. So let's do the math. It's a, you know, 60, 
65, almost 66 in Tampa. You just gave away your age. Yes, I did. But to everyone except me, because you did you did that even earlier because we started with born in 1947. Oh, there you so. go. So they uh, they've oh. already done the math. They could have told me. <laughs> so Ronnie, growing up in Alabama, you if some songs certainly the reference that. Did you ever go back? Or did you spend the majority of your time in Tampa? Uh, I would go back in the uh, summers, and uh, the 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 part of the thing about the watermelon fields and all that. I would go back and work in my uncle's watermelon patches in the summer. Spend time with my cousins. And I'm still in touch with some of those cousins now. I mean, I, I don't go back very often. But uh, we have, you know, there's a family reunion once every three or four years. But uh, we're, we're fewer relatives every year now, so we don't go as often. And you grew up with mom, dad, parents, brothers, sisters? I, I grew up with a, a single mother and uh, my grandmother. And Lottie uh, was my grandmother. So that's basically memories of all of that mostly my grandmother though yeah yeah wow so back then in the 50s to be raised by a single mother that was it was unusual yeah i I, I didn't know other kids you know from broken homes really right but but i as nearly as i can put everything together i didn't think very much about it it didn't occur to me that things were different you know whatever your household is that's normal right right uh, until uh, by the time I was old enough so that Father Knows Best and uh, Ozzy and Harriet and, and, and those things, uh, Make Room for Daddy came along, that's when I began to realize this isn't normal. This isn't Were you normal. like, hey, Mom, do I have a daddy? Uh, it, you know, it would come up from time to time. She she didn't uh, uh, keep me from knowing anything about it, but she didn't volunteer very much either. Mm-hmm. And I never, uh, I oh, well, to this day, I've never met my father I'm going to take a wild guess that he's no longer with us. But uh, about 10 years ago, a wife uh, convinced me to call him. I tracked him down and called him, and we chatted on the phone for about 10 minutes. You know, I mean, really, we just didn't have anything to say to each other. It wasn't terribly melodramatic. It was kind of uneventful. It was pleasant. It was, And uh, after those 10 minutes, he said, okay, you be a good boy. Of course, I was basically an old man by then. Was, you know, well, that's what you say to your cocker spaniel. You know, but he seemed like a nice enough guy. Yeah. Well, it's better than him being an asshole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, so, it, it, but, you know, I've had therapists tell me, well, you have all kinds of stuff about this. You just don't know about it. You haven't found it. And I certainly believe that they know what they're talking about. I mean, in the first place, they've all said that to me. Or are, is that just a technique they use to keep you coming back for uh, more appointments? I, I like, suspect that a therapist would just as soon not have me come. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, so, so what, Ronnie, you're cured. You don't have to come. Yeah, <laughs> I have had uh, I have had at least one therapist tell me that. So, okay. Yeah. And basically, I think what that means is there's nothing more that I can do to help you. <laughs> so, take it how you want. Yeah, I'd say. Uh, it's proper proper medical diagnosis, but but I like uh, you know the the first time every time I've ever been a woman has dragged me to a therapist, and I think the idea is um, well we'll we'll go see a therapist and they'll tell you you're crazy and then everything will be okay we can work it out then, and of course they always tell me yeah you're crazy, but then every single time they've turned to the woman with me and said well you're crazy too. <laughs> Boo! They don't seem to like it, you know. That's that was never the idea, but 
the first time I ever went, I remember thinking, uh, when I was a kid, I knew that movie stars all had psychiatrists. And I thought, well, all movie stars are crazy. And the first time I saw a therapist, I realized, oh, movie stars are all wealthy. They can afford psychiatry. We should all have their, you know, I think it's great. Because we're all crazy. Everybody's crazy, yeah. I mean, it's true. I, I think a lot of people will probably, you know, songwriting-wise, like, that is a catharsis. It's a way to what? express a bunch of stuff. But, you know, for me at least, I, the times I've been, it's been because I have something I'm working through that I feel like a, I don't I don't want to burden my friends with it. Well, you know? uh, apparently, uh, Ozzie Nelson was quite the tyrant and, you know, just not a very pleasant guy. Robert Gray, you know, father, is it Robert Gray? Robert... Uh, Anyway, father. Robert something. Yeah. Robert Young. Robert Young. Robert Young was an alcoholic and not a a terribly pleasant guy for most of his uh, working career. And uh, so even even normal people aren't normal. So getting brought up by your grandmother and your mom, what kind of upbringing was that? Were you an athlete? Were they musical? What kind of kid were you? Um... I'd say maybe answer that up to six. And then if that changed. Up to six, I... well, even beyond uh, up to six, uh, up until 16, I was just incredibly spoiled. I mean, I, I really grew up, eh, I don't want to say poor, but it was very close to poor. And since I grew up, for the most part, surrounded by very wealthy kids, it was it was particularly poor. When you got to Tampa, is that when you were surrounded by wealthy kids or yeah, well uh you know i went to plant high school in tampa right. and wilson yep. junior high school so i was surrounded by those pillars of the community who now once a year dress up like pirates and throw up on their own shoes you know? <laughs> uh, but i just really never quite caught on that i was different than they were um so it didn't bother me too much but my mom uh you mean socioeconomically different. yes my well, in other ways too, but that's a whole different story. But my mom we'll sacrificed uh, to to just buy me everything. Uh, so cars came even before guitars in a lot of ways. I, I, by the time I was old enough to drive legally, I was on my third car, which was a thirty-two Ford coupe with a Corvette engine, and just not something that you think somebody's mom's going to buy them. It's a uh, so the other two cars you. Couldn't drive legally, but were you driving them around? Like no, driving? not okay. not much. Uh, most of the time, you know, if, if somebody was old enough to, in fact, the thirty two Ford, I wasn't old enough to legally drive when you know got it put together, and uh, I was in a hot rod club that met at the uh, police station downtown Tampa, where Stetson University is now. And how old were you? I was I was, I guess I was fifteen when I had that car. And I would have to get another member of the Hot Rod Club to drive my car down or because uh, it'd be at night. You know, they were all thrilled to do that. But uh, and then when guitars came along, um, same thing. My mom sacrificed everything. Luckily, I, I think and this might not be accurate, but uh, I think that the reason that I'm a tolerable human being that people can stand to be around me is because I also was uh, spoiled with love. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just here take this and be quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a, uh, I know that it was rough in every way for my mom to raise me, uh, you know, and, and economically uh, it was, would have been a nightmare. So your mom, you, you, your mom and Lottie all together yeah. in the same yeah. home like yeah. in yeah. Tampa and did Lottie live, how 
How old did she live to be? She she had uh, moved back to uh, Alabama and then finally had to be in a uh, a nursing home for about the last year, maybe, of her life. But she was almost 100 years old when she passed. Okay. And I lost my mom about uh, five years ago. Well, and uh, actually the song you wrote for your grandmother is one of my favorites. Uh, She's in a lot of them, but there is one that is about her, yes. Yes. Uh, Would you mind playing that one for us? I'd love to. Okay. I was dreaming about Lottie again last night. And I thought I smelled fried peach pies. She was sitting at the piano. I was dreaming in three, four time. All the angels in heaven laugh so hard. My girl tells a story. She could sing. She could play about anything. She had trouble making it rhyme. pronounced holy we'd all love to be consumed by something I cross my heart before I pray and I cross my fingers before I lie I remember paydays and silver dollars I can remember the rainstorms Big old raindrops made it hard to get the big grays out of that watermelon patch into the tractor back to the truck. store, grapey goes by the score. I remember the 54 Bel Air. Jemison was only two blocks long, but there were only stores on one side of the street, so I guess in a way Jemison was only one block long. I had four dollars, I went to Cobb's Hardware and I got pocket watch. lasted until those Levi's hit the wash. Who cares? My cousin George, he wanted to be a juvenile delinquent, so he bought a knife. Cobb's Hardware. We showed it to Nubbin Davenport in the watermelon patch. 
took a look at it and he said, George, that's a Japanese roofing knife. It's hard to be a juvenile delinquent threaten anybody when you're trying to threaten them with a Japanese roofing knife. He invested the rest of his pay from the watermelon patch in black hair dye so he could look like Elvis. Turn George's hair green, turn in Newt's pot purple. George didn't look a thing like Elvis. that song ronnie oh thank you that's beautiful yeah that is beautiful it's it's almost like this pleasant fever dream a little bit yes right it's very grounded but still whimsical at the same time Mm -hmm. you know fried fried peach pies oh yeah yeah Yeah, what a visual she made uh well she was a great cook anyway but uh until fairly recently in oklahoma i mean i I had the old billies too just with different name i guess but uh on the sidewalk, they're selling fried peach pies and fried apple pies, you know, the little folded over things that I had never had since I was a kid. That It's like, oh, I miss it really badly. So that's what it is. Yeah. It's like the little folded over yeah. individual serving. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, it looks like something you'd get in a Mexican restaurant, you know, some cross between a burrito and a soft taco or gotcha. something. But it's uh Well, now I want one. Oh, yeah, you sure do. <laughs> And every now and then there would be a blackberry or blueberry ones too. They were all oh, magnificent. Man. Whichever one she made, those were the good ones. It's it's very uh on NPR they always have Kwame Alexander on once in a while. You know, the guy that's he's their poetry consultant. I don't know if it's his actual title, but he always says he's great, you know, poetry uh readings and he and he'll do a little exercise with the host. Um, but very much I can that's like this almost this deaf jam thing to it, you know, like warm peach pie. You know, just, but with such a unique, yeah, su- super typical, but also very unique. Like, yeah. you know, there's not a lot of songs you're hearing that in. And just the delivery and yeah, it's, it's a, that definitely is, that song sticks for yeah. sure. And what did your mom do for a living? As I was growing up, she worked at the telephone company here. It was Peninsula Telephone when we moved to Tampa. She was an information operator and, um, you know, nobody had phone numbers in their phone, so they would have to call, I think it was like three or something. You would just dial a three on the phone, and they would go, information, what number, please? And you would say, I'm looking for Ed Wattill. And they would say, is that the one on Park Place? And you, yes. And they'd give you the telephone number. So she would do that for eight hours a day, five days a week. And that afforded hot runs? 
Not really. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to guess that she did without something so that I could have the uh, hot rod. And uh, so was there. There was not really an extended family like. Uh, well, um, y- yes, and I shouldn't leave any of that out because um, uh, my mom. Th- there were five siblings. She had uh, two sisters and two brothers. Uh, one of the sisters, uh, my aunt Jo, is still alive. I talked to her day before yesterday. She's 102 now. Yeah, she's and living in they, southern Alabama. Okay, I was going to ask her that yeah. most of the... She's she's great. She's in. Uh, uh, she doesn't get around well now from a fall uh, here uh, years ago at a family reunion, but uh, mentally she is just perfect. Everything is very good. Yeah, you can't leave out the aunt or the extended yeah. family because it's so prevalent in so many of your sons. Well, uh, the reason I even started uh, answering about the extended family is that the uh, my two uncles... And in fact, my other two uncles married to my aunts, all of them were very conscious to help me, you know, wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything in terms of, you know, male influence in my life. And they were so incredibly uh, generous and good to me that in some ways I had it better because I I went on two or three vacations a year. Every time somebody started going on vacation, little Ronnie got dragged along too. So uh, yeah, there were, there were, there was an upside. Awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned guitars wandered in. Yeah. When did you, like, was there music in the house? When did yeah. you start to develop this craft? Uh, you know, now this is some of the stuff that I have trouble understanding. Uh, my mom was always just crazy about all music, uh, really good music, or at least in, in my book these days. My taste was so much formed by what she liked, and she liked everything that was good. She loved um hillbilly music, western swing music. She brought me home rhythm and blues 45s when I was 9, 10 years old. Pretty smutty looking back and listening to some of those things. Now, I suspect she had no idea what they were singing about, and I certainly didn't until just the last 5 or 10 years. So, uh, But uh, began taking me to see um, great shows, uh, every genre, you know, just whatever came along. She liked everything, and... Uh, she took me to a show at the Armory in Tampa. It was called The Biggest Rock and Roll Show of 56. And it was Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Big Joe Turner, the Teen Queens, the Platters, Bill Haley and the Comets, Bo Diddley, uh, the Drifters. Clyde McFadder had left and gone into the Army, and he was home on leave and was there and sang with the Drifters in his Army wow. uniform. Yeah, Laverne Baker. Wow. And I'm probably leaving out some people. But it just almost killed me. I, I'm not over it yet, you know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It was, so uh, you were. I was nine. Nine years old. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and there are just certain elements of it. Uh, the fact that uh, Bo Diddley came out with glasses on, you know, for me, a kid who couldn't see and had to have glasses on to even see the show. It, it began to change everything, you know. Look, here's somebody with glasses. And Big Joe Turner, I thought he was such an old man. He was probably 40. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it has a lot to do with keeping me going now, I think, my memory of Big Joe Turner. Because, you know, he could rock and roll better than than those kids could. So it was, uh, yeah. And then at one point, a little, a little older than that, you... She actually took you on a quest to go meet Elvis. Can you tell us about that? Well, she did, but there were Elvis things in between, too. Okay. Um, 
in fact, before that show, I think, because that was late in 1956. But Elvis was here, I think, once in 55 and then twice in 56. And I didn't see any of those shows. Uh, I know I was in Alabama for at least one of them. My mom went to one, but the other one, which I presume was the last one, uh, there was a, a, a woman who, or a girl at the time, who worked with my mother at the telephone company named Evelyn Gold. And Elvis, uh, the Elvis Presley fan club, the only one there was at the time, Evelyn Gold ran it. Okay. So when Elvis was in Tampa, he stayed with Evelyn. And, and, and so I still, to this day, have a lot of uh, memorabilia and autograph things and that, that uh, she would take, you know, for me to my mom. And after one of those shows, the one I said I think was the last one, my mom went to work and Evelyn said, Maxine, you were on the phone all night last night, weren't you? And my mom said, I don't know. I was on the phone. So why? And Evelyn said, because Elvis tried to call Ronnie all night. Your phone was busy. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am still telling that story. It'll give you an idea of uh, how, how important that was to me. But yeah, in 1960, I guess it was. In the summer of 1960, I think, when they started to film Follow That Dream in uh, Crystal River uh, and, and around that area, um, I figured out from some of the first newspaper articles where they were and the only place that they must be staying. And I would get uh, whatever friend of my mom's, whatever relative I could, anybody who's old enough to drive, I'd get them to take me up to uh, Crystal River. And the uh, first morning that we went up, uh, we got there just as the sun was starting to come up and saw a, a Cadillac with Tennessee plates and thought, well, this is probably a good guess, and pulled in and parked next to it. And it, it randomly walked up to one of the little cottages at, um, what was it called? Uh, Port Paradise in Crystal River. And a door opened and Elvis strolled out and, uh, <laughs> you know, just walked right up and we probably stood there and talked to him for like half an hour. He was, uh, he, his hair wasn't combed and he was not, he was not set yet. You know, he was on his way to the shoot. So uh, where they would do the makeup and his hair and all that. Uh, but he, he was just so incredibly sweet. He was too polite to walk away. He, he, he just wouldn't leave. And after that, we would go up. Uh, I went up probably 10 times, 12 times after that, you know, to see Elvis. Uh, you know, a lot of, spent a lot of time uh, just hanging around. One afternoon, we went up and uh, he was, he and Colonel Parker and uh, some of Colonel Parker's grandchildren were just sitting outside, out by Colonel Parker's uh, a little villa and uh, sat around all afternoon and talked to him. My grandmother was there that day. And she started telling Elvis, uh, you have no idea how many fights Ronnie was in in school years ago, you know, taking up for you and things come up. And Elvis said, uh, I can teach you something to take care of that. And I said, karate? I had no idea what karate was, but I'd seen in magazines that Elvis was studying karate. He said, yeah. So he offered to teach me karate. <laughs> he never did, but that was <laughs> So the, obviously Elvis is Elvis, but... Was it, you were seeing him on TV? Like, I mean, when was the first time it impacted you? And because that is, I would, most of the stuff of your catalog I'm familiar with, that is a pretty consistent thread. Yeah, yeah. El, Elvis, well, even before he was on TV by the, you know, the first of the shows and the Dorsey Brothers and Milton Berle and all that, I was already a huge fan. My mom had uh, 
brought me records. And, and, and to this day, I, I, I can st- it, it, there's a real uh, analogy with that whole Beatles thing. You know, you know, there is that mystique that is impossible to talk about with somebody who doesn't share the mystique. Right. But just the name Elvis Presley. It's like, what is an Elvis Presley? You know, and uh, the, the the stories that you hear about him getting uh, airplay on rhythm and blues stations, and how disappointed they are when they were when they found out that he was white, and he, he was just a, a total mystery until the television stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was uh, it, 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 for me. It's somewhere between Elvis and the Beatles because Elvis was a god, and it didn't mean that anybody else could do it. And then the Beatles were mortals. I mean, as as special as they were, they were still regular people. So somewhere between those two things, it was like, well, yeah, this is what I have to do. And honestly. Even though every time I would pretend to grow up and cut my hair and get a job and wear a tie for a few minutes, I know my mom was always thrilled as long as I was playing rock and roll. So, And now, a quick interlude about one of the companies supporting this podcast. Ed, I think we can both agree that the best tasting songs are those that happen naturally. That's true. Wait, you can't really taste a song, though. That part's not... That's also true of the food we choose to consume, which is why our favorite new artist on the healthy protein charts is ButcherBox. 100% grass-fed beef delivered on dry ice to your door anywhere in the lower 48. So, does that make Alaska like the upper... Ed, just open the box. If you're into more genres than just beef, ButcherBox has you covered. They also deliver Alaskan wild sockeye salmon, free-range organic chicken... Wow, there's got to be like 11 pounds of meat in here. Heritage breed pork and special bacon. Special bacon? Special because it's free. Use code SONGDIVERS at checkout to get $20 off and free bacon in your first butcher box. And shipping's free too. Special bacon and special shipping. That's special. Now, can you grill as well as you can play guitar? Visit butcherbox.com to order. So, yeah, let's jump into when you started playing and how you met other musicians. And, um, I mean, you, you wanted to be in a band, obviously. Yeah. So Yeah, it was, um, gosh, it must have been, uh, the, I, I really was starting to want to play just as the Beatles were, you were just hearing about them. I mean, it was long before Ed Sullivan and all that. There, there was, I'd seen a tiny little article in the, in the Tampa Tribune about this group, the Beatles. And then Jack Parr ran that news clip, you know, at at night too. But I didn't know much about any of that. And I was getting ready to start playing anyway. And, and I was, uh, So probably about 15. I was, uh, yeah, probably about 15. Yeah. And I had owned guitars and I had messed around with things that were more related to Elvis than, than the Beatles, really. And, and I idolized uh, Buddy Holly and a lot of people in between, Gene Vinson. Uh, but the Beatles began to change everything. And uh, I was working after school uh, as a bag boy. And uh, another young guy, Don Smith, who worked with me, uh, he was playing drums and I had started moving to bass. So I've always been fascinated with bass. I guess I always will be. And um he said, we're going to start a band. Do you want to, you want to be in this band with us? You know, I know you're playing bass. And I said, no, I don't, I don't think I'm really ready to do that. And he said, well, come with me tonight 
uh, I want you to meet the guy you know, who's going to play guitar in this band. I decided to go with him. And we went to some hot dog restaurant on Hillsborough Avenue in Tampa. And uh, we walked up to this candy maroon 57 Thunderbird. And uh, as we walked up, the door opens and this guy gets out with hair down to his shoulders. This was like 1963, 1964. I've never seen anything like it in a he had on candy apple red patent leather shoes with brass zippers up the side. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and uh, I met this guy who's a friend today, Warren Novak. And uh, I don't know how to say this without it being somewhat insulting, but to, to say that Warren is primitive won't really do. I mean, he, he just barely is human. Yeah, but he is, Hi, Warren. Yeah, he is the most charismatic, uh, uh, just incredible phenomena that I have ever seen. Just and a great guy. But uh, uh, he was just he, he played through. Uh, he always insisted on using. Uh, he would even make us sing through his guitar amp, and it was uh, an Echo Sonic. And I remember him always saying. Uh, well, they only made 60 of these, 70 of these or something. I've got one. Scotty Moore's got one, and he'd rattle off a few. And I think, yeah, right. Uh, so years and years and years later, um, I read an interview in Goldmine with Scotty Moore, and he said, yeah, you know, I played through this Echo Sonic, and they only made 60 of them. And <laughs> <laughs> but Warren is the uh, – that's how I ever met uh, – Greg and Dwayne Allman, you know, he had, he had worked circuits with them. This was all later after we had broken up the other band. We had a misunderstanding about putting together songs and I had quit our band, the Ravons. But uh, years later, uh, Warren told me about these brothers from Daytona and I really needed to meet Greg and Dwayne. And uh, I didn't really meet them through uh, Warren. I met them because Barry Oakley was a, a really good friend of mine and, um, I had been trying to get Barry uh, a solo deal when they put the Allman Brothers band together. So that was no longer a possibility. So I booked uh, the Allman Brothers for the first real show they ever played. It was at the Electric Zoo, you know, here in St. Pete. And uh, So you were in promotion at that point? Well, like, sort I, of. I was kind of forced to do that, of working for my record producer. I think he did not like paying me and me doing nothing. So we promoted shows yeah. farming out yeah. uh, chores. To- so they, uh, when the, you know, I met Greg uh, and they had just, they were just finishing up recording the first album. And uh, he said, you want to hear it? And I said, yeah. So uh, he took me outside and there was a big Oak tree out by the side of the electric zoo there on candy Boulevard. We sat under the Oak tree and he played me a cassette of what became the first, uh, Almond Brothers record, and, and uh, as soon as we sat down, he said, so you're friends with Warren Novak? And I said, yeah. And he said, aren't you scared of him? <laughs> I said, yeah, aren't you? And he said, yeah, I think everybody is. So, yeah. it's a, that's a long answer to uh, no, but you start a, your first band. That's a, Oh, it's a good segue. So that's, that's starting your first band. I mean, you've had a pretty storied career. So maybe walk us through a little bit of the chronology there. Mm, let's see. The uh, the Ravons, uh, part of, you know, I mentioned the primitive nature. It, now, if this is me calling somebody primitive, you can imagine Warren Novak with a, a, a jutted brow. And, but uh, 
we were working on some song and I stopped and I said, no, we, we do a turnaround there. And he just glared at me. And I said, well, see, Buddy Holly plays a turnaround when he gets to this part. And he went, so? <laughs> Still one of the most important lessons I've ever learned in my life. <laughs> but at some point, I thought, no, there's a limit to this. So I left. And um, the first band job I ever played on stage, even before the Ravons, uh, my friends, the Tropics, were uh, playing and they were a horn band kind of Latin influenced. And it, it was very Tampa at the time. And, uh, Charlie Sousa, uh, a friend of mine was, uh, the bass player and, uh, Eric Turner and Buddy Pendergrass, the two guitar players, uh, I'm going to junior high school and high school with them. They said, Charlie is sick. He's not going to be able to play tonight. We're playing at Madison Junior High School. You know, could you play bass with us? And I was like, I'm not sure. I said, well, we don't have any choice. Okay. So I washed my hair every day, and they had their hair all slicked back. So that night, uh, little girls at the junior high school dance wanted my autograph. And, and you know, was very upsetting to them. It's like, oh, he's not even in our band. We don't even know him. And, so that was the beginning of my career, and I was pretty sure I was going to like this. <laughs> so that was pre-Ravons, but uh, that that was one night. And by the way, Charlie Sousa was not sick. He was playing with the pastels because they were paying him $15 instead of $10. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So, Entrepreneur. Scandal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Charlie would do that today, I suspect. The Ravons, then I ended up— And, uh, and how, how old are you at this time? Uh, probably 16. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I'm sure the hot rod didn't help. No, they didn't. It, it, it was, a, it was a, a class. I was always out of time. In fact, because of the Beatles, it was one of the few fashionable periods of my entire life. You know, for 15 minutes, I, I was okay. You know, so like, <laughs> look at that. And so it didn't last, but my, but Spencer Hinkle, uh, who is one of my dearest friends today, uh, was the drummer in the tropics. Oh, I should mention this, uh, we were, as we started to go on stage that night at Madison Junior High School, my friend Buddy Pendergrass said, are you nervous? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, as soon as you make your first mistake and they don't stop dancing, it, it'll all be okay. Sure enough, you know, I immediately made a mistake. And, but it, at some point in the night, I saw the drummer Spencer Hinkle motion for Buddy Pendergrass, the guitar player, to come over. And the drummer was telling the guitar player, somebody's playing in the wrong key. And I believe we were doing Louie Louie. And who knows what key I was playing in, but it was a different key than the rest of them. So the drummer had to tell the guitar player to tell me the bass player <laughs> I was playing in the wrong key. But uh, I got Spencer into uh, my friend's band, The Outsiders, and they were doing well here. And um, like a month later, the bass player quit and Spencer got me in The Outsiders. So that began the thing... The Outsiders. Yeah, who's that really avant-garde bass player that you had at the end? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, was, it was real jazz, I'll tell you. See, uh, Warren Novak would have been proud of me. But The Outsiders morphed into uh, the Soul Trippers because of The Outsiders from Cleveland having a hit record. Uh, I, let's see. The Soul Trippers broke up because of Vietnam and all kinds of things like that, business decisions and... Um, Buddy Richardson and I, along with Bobby Caldwell, started a band, Noah's Ark. I quit Noah's Ark because after a couple of years, even though I'd put all my heart and soul into it, it was I felt like we were doing what other people were doing, which was unappealing to me. I tried to start a rhythm and blues band, and uh, 
first this horn player wouldn't show up and then that keyboard player wouldn't show up and then none of the girl singers were there. So it ended up being a, a four-piece country band that was me, a bass player, sort of, and three drummers, uh, Spencer being the drummer who was the best, but he who also knew enough guitar to teach one of the other drummers some guitar. So uh, our country band, your local bear, the, the first real show we ever played was with Jimi Hendrix at Curtis Hickson. So I was like, well, this is good timing. <laughs> so, so you're going to play country music. And this was before Sweetheart of the Rodeo. You know, there was no, there was country music there. I mean, in fact, I think we've talked about the Beatles played a lot of country music, but nobody talked about any country influence in rock and roll. But we did our best to play country music, and that sort of became Duck Butter over a period of time. And Duck- which is which is a band name, not a right, figure of speech. Right, right. It, well, it is a figure of speech and a band name. <laughs> it the, uh, and we did that for some period of time, and uh, got to work. Uh, that that band that was an acquired taste, uh, but it was uh, a whole lot of fun. Was Harry Hayward in yeah, that band? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, the in fact. Um, it took years for Harry to tell me uh, when he, he was a drummer originally. And when they wanted me to be in the band, I said, well, you know, I've got a drummer, so let's let this other guy sing. Uh, isn't that the guy who sticks furniture up his nose and sets things? That, yeah, that's him. So Harry, it took him decades to have the nerve to tell me that he thought I was firing him, that that was the <laughs> way I was going to fire him. But no, he was great doing magic and everything. And, uh, so that band lasted for a, uh, a a good long time, and I got to meet and work with a lot of heroes, and, and, and which was one of the best things about it. Did you go on the road with with Duck Butter? I mean, did you uh, guys end up on tour? Or well, we like- were. I mean, we would tour around mostly just the southeast. It, 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 Duck Butter was oddly enough more a Miami band than a Tampa. There was quite the music scene down there. So time. you'd get on, but you opened for a lot of these people, like yeah, uh, we did. Uh, uh, the in in fact, the first um, the guy Richard Nader, who did the uh, first uh, rock and roll revival thing at uh, Madison Square Garden, the uh, tour that they brought down here then was the second time that there was any rock and roll revival. Nobody had even used that terminology or anything. So it uh, we did just three dates. Uh, but with uh, Gene Vinson, um, the Coasters, Bill Haley and the Comets, Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley. And it was just great fun. Uh, Bo carried a band with him, uh, but we we played with uh, Chuck Berry and Gene Vinson and the Coasters. And, and it was just great fun. It got to be... Uh, um, I hate to say we got to be friends. We got to be friends with some of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm just picturing that yeah. scene from Back to the Future, you know, the first one, where he's just ripping the guitar in the high school dance, like just super nostalgic. But it's cra- yeah. it's it's interesting for me to to think about that because we've had this discussion a little bit about like the Beatles or like I envy people that heard Hendrix or the Beatles or Chuck for the first time. You know? Oh it, yeah, it was just uh, well, I mean Chuck Berry. And, and not, having never, because certainly there's the first time I heard that. Yeah. And it, it certainly struck me and is incredible, but you were hearing it in the context of never having heard anything like that before. Well, Chuck Berry, um, maybe even bigger in, in some ways, in some important ways than Elvis and the Beatles, uh, was Chuck Berry for me. I mean, he was right there at the top. 
So, and that was the first time I ever worked with him. And, and the first show was in Tampa. So um, I think we were supposed to do a sound check with him at Curtis Hickson at three o'clock or something like that. And at quarter to eight, he strolled in uh, and opened up his case and walked out and said, hey, I'm Chuck Berry. I mean, as though we didn't know. And he said, uh, I'll tell you what song we're going to do. I'll tell you what key we're playing in. And don't anybody play too loud because it's my show. And I wouldn't play too loud if it's your show. But if you do, I'll stop and I'll embarrass you. And if I go like this, and he swung his guitar down, he said, you stop. And he turned around, put his guitar in the case, and walked off, and that was our sound check. <laughs> Whoa! But you know, we all grew up playing Chuck Berry songs, so I was like, "Well, that, that's okay." You know, were you it, on your toes then? Well, the, we, you know, he, he wasn't very friendly, but he was closing the show that night, so we were out there. And we went out, to, you know, for Chuck to close the thing, and uh, without any warning or anything at all, we hear, dun, 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 you know, Nadine from the Wings, and he's dancing out playing Nadine and we're fumbling around doing and, the duck walk. Like yeah. Like. Yeah. Sort of. And, uh, but, uh, it was in, it was in some horn key, you know, it was not in the key that the record was in at all. So we're all, you know, looking around, he came out and it was like, well, it's still okay. It's still in, uh, so he's, when he started dancing for his first solo, he swung his guitar down. And we all stopped dead. That's what he told me. I never got a meaner, dirtier look in my life. We never <laughs> fell for that one again. But, uh, uh, um, you know, it, it was hit or miss. He, and he was okay that night. Um, uh, it, it, well, he was actually, he was very good, but he was also reasonably pleasant. But uh, we were all on a bus together for the tour, and uh, Chuck would fly. He flew from here to Orlando, and then from Orlando to Jacksonville. Of course, we would get there before he did. And uh, I, he and Bo Diddley did not uh, address each other at all. And when Bo would talk about him, he would refer to him as Mr. Barry. And, and I know they made up after that, but they didn't. There was no love lost at that time. So That's so rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, but he but the the very last time I played with him, which was quite a few years later, it got to a point so that when he was anywhere down here, he would have the promoter get in touch with me to put a band together for him. And uh, sometimes he would be really nice and it would be fun, and other times it would just be horrible, and you could never tell which it was going to be. But last time we played with him, uh, the James Gang opened for us. It was in Miami at the Highlight Fronton, and he was. Just magnificent. He he recited poetry and was down on his knees and uh, and we played uh, two and a half hours. And the next week, uh, he was he did that Mike Douglas show with uh, John and Yoko, and Mike Douglas asked him. I think it's on YouTube. In fact, uh, you know, uh, is there ever a point where they just won't let you go? They won't won't let you. Leave? And he said, Yeah, I just played the longest set I've ever played last week. Is two and a half hours long. Well, me too. That was you. <laughs> but, you know, he was friendly that night and fun and uh, hanging around backstage, uh, you know, at the end of the show. He, he uh, at one point, he said he was always trying to get us to come visit him at uh, in Wentzville. And he said, uh, yeah, there, there, there's only a come, come stay with me at Barry Park. There's only one cop in Wentzville and I've got Polaroids of him. And we all laughed, you know, I thought that well, uh, there's a clever, funny, uh, a little offbeat ditty. And no, I think he probably had Polaroids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lots of stories came out after that. But, uh, so that was, uh, and I, after that one, I thought, well, we'll just leave it at this. I didn't want to run the risk of 
uh, any of the bad ones again. So, so did, did you? Point, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. Did you get to meet Hendrix? Yeah. And, and how was he? Uh, shy and quiet. I mean, I didn't really spend any time with him at all. Uh, the uh, there was some kind of little. Uh, I don't know how official this organization was, but all of the police departments were in touch with each other. And he had been, I think, in Atlanta the night before he was here. So there was uh, all these bulletins to the police in Tampa saying that um, uh, there could be trouble if he whacks these amps. You know, they go flying and it's part of what makes riots and everything. So part of our uh, job after we played was to stand behind the... uh, Marshall cabinets and hold them up in case he whacked them, which he didn't do. But uh, were you uh, paid extra for that, Ronnie? But no, no. Uh, but it it, it meant for a pretty good seat for the show, you know. So uh, yeah, we didn't really. And the idea that he was going to be, I mean, he was famous and he was big and it was important. But it, you know, you got to die to be Jimi Hendrix. Was right. it '67 or yeah, somewhere in there? I think it was '67. Like- he was, came was he twice. Like, was it, did, was the oh, set good? Yeah, it was great. It was it was mostly that first uh, American album. You yeah, know. this was before the days when he started lighting his guitar on fire. And, and no, well, uh, he might have was already. It? Done. It, it was like right at that time. It but was, not on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> it was sort of the height of Jimi Hendrix, really, right. in, in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so uh, you know. It, it's not like he wasn't nice or it's not like a, there was anything boring about it, but it's just like I didn't pay that much attention. It was not like when Chuck Berry walked into the room, you know. Uh, but, it, but you know, glad it happened. So at what point were you moving into doing your own songs and pursuing your own, like, was Duck Butter trying to? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, pretty much from the beginning. Okay. Uh, I mean, I always, well, even now. You know, I'm dying to go on stage to play. That's my desire. You yeah, know? right. But, um, yeah, I never really wanted to do anything. And, and finally, uh, I, I never knew how this happened, but uh, it seems to go hand in hand with getting old. But no matter what I do now, it sounds like some Ronnie Elliott song anyway, so it doesn't even make any difference. <laughs> You found your essence. I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I wasn't looking for it, but yeah, I'm afraid I might have it. I mean, so have you always approached your songwriting that way? Like the the stuff that I know, I mean, if, if we listen to your discography, there's a lot of threads of a very specific style. So it's, before I comment, I'm interested, who do you think you sound like? Like what influenced you? Who do you think you sound like? Obviously you're an Elvis fan and I can hear some of that, but there's a lot of other stuff in there. Oh, yeah. And I don't even... Um, in, in a lot of cases, people have to tell me about the thing. I, I know I was in uh, I was in Germany one time, and some guy was interviewing me, and he had on like a black turtleneck and sunglasses, and we're down in some dingy bar anyway. I mean, it, it's like he was playing a German writer on Saturday Night Live. I, I was going to say, who was that guy? He, he, he was really a, he was really a German writer, and he asked me, um, "Why do you write such dark, sad songs?" and I, I had never thought that I did write dark, uh, sad songs. And I just sat there for a minute. And, and what I immediately seized on was, well, it's not his first language. You know, I'm trying to be fun, <laughs> funny. And he thinks this, uh, you know, he thinks I'm really hacking people up here and everything. <laughs> and then over time, you know, other people would ask me and I realized, yeah, they are. And then um, 
I remember an interview with Chuck Berry when I was like 10 or 11 years old, and uh, the, the writer was kind of fawning over him and, and suggesting that he had invented rock and roll, and you know, there's this whole thing because of you. And he was going, no, man. And he started talking about Louis Jordan and different people. And, and, and at the time, I thought, well, what a humble guy, which, of course, I realize now he was anything but a humble guy. <laughs> but he said something I never forgot. He said, uh, I've only written two or three songs. Uh, and I didn't think much about it. And looking back uh, over a period of time, I realized he really only wrote, you know, a couple of songs and then did them over and over and changed them and it took me decades after that to realize I've only written a couple of songs too. You know, I didn't, I didn't know for a very long time, but I've been writing the same thing now for a long time. So it's interesting. Cause I, I see threads through, you know, you've got yeah. how many albums, like you have 12 albums or something like that. Something right? like so, that. Yeah. Yeah. And I do see threads in there. I don't, I don't see it from that same perspective. But as a writer myself, I, I have come to see the same thing about myself. Like I keep returning to the same yeah. themes. And right. It, it, yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I care, right. but, uh, but if I could do a completely different one every time, I certainly would. But uh, n- not at the expense of it, not feeling like what I really wanted to do. I'm living in a state of mind Haven't fallen from a state of grace There's a long road behind me A long road as far as I can see My compass in my road You've been listening to Song Divers. Thank you for supporting us and our sponsors and all the great independent music makers out there trying to make their way in the music business these days. The opinions of our guests are their own. Songs we heard in this episode are Born in 1947 and Poisonville, both from Ronnie's Poisonville album. We also heard Lottie from Ronnie's Valentine Roadkill album. I'm living in Poisonville Got no love, I guess I never will I keep running, I'm standing still Thank you to Ronnie Elliott for coming by the studio. If you want to hear more of Ronnie, check him out on iTunes or Spotify. Or, if you enjoyed Ronnie's content as much as we did, check out Ronnie's famous and free-loving blog at ronnieelliott.blogspot.com. Ronnie's spelled R-O-N-N-Y, and Elliott is E-L-L-I-O-T-T. I'm looking for a turn for worse In a heart that's dark enough between the shadow and the light, and the line between night and day. Ronnie, can I get you anything else, man? Oh, no, I'm good. Well, uh, unless, and uh, Ed and I have already been through this, if my car won't start, I'll be staying here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Song Divers is a production of Ebor City Records and recorded in the historic Kenwood district of St. Petersburg, Florida.